a sketch of a Christian life, part two. As I said last week, the focus was on God's role in our salvation. And you know that I said it was a sketch of a Christian life because I had the next year in a series of messages, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is God's role in salvation? And even if you just took, say, for instance, one thought that we had from last week, that our salvation from Romans 8, 29, and 30 is this wonderful, unbroken chain of salvation that takes us from foreknowledge, God's foreknowledge of us, that is, he foreloved us all the way to glorification, that in itself would be the rest of the year. Oh, absolutely. And so I purposely said a sketch of a Christian life. I mean, we learned last week that all that we have uh, comes from the gracious hand of God. God intervened. He foreloved us, which means he set his affection upon us um, in eternity. And of course, even when we say that language, the language is limiting, isn't it? Because we say in eternity, and in one sense, was there some point in eternity when this happened? Only the expression of those thoughts in time. And so what a great truth that God is, is telling us that I have foreloved you, and then I will also glorify you. It is unbroken. And as we say, uh, the strength of any chain is its weakest what? Link. And nothing is weak. Foreknowledge is not weak. Calling is not weak. Justification is not weak. Sanctification is not weak. Glorification is not weak. So there's no weakness in that chain of salvation. And we are so thankful for it, realizing that our salvation is a result of the kind decision of a gracious God according to his sovereign will. This is an important message because um, in one sense what it does, it reflects, that is part two, uh, a message that provides a mirror for your life, a mirror for your life. And I would say if you don't, if one were to say here is a sketch of a Christian and you look into that mirror and you see parts of it, but maybe not other parts. And in some areas you don't hardly see anything, then you should walk away and ask, am I really a believer? Have I really trusted Christ? So it really is one of the most important messages that we can ever hear. Anything having to do with your eternal soul. Um, I'd said last week as well that I wanted it to be a compliment to what we did in the series on sharing the gospel, reminding us this is our purpose for being. Why are we here? It is we are here for one purpose and one purpose alone, that we will be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ of his kingdom. And you've heard it, I'm sure, said different ways by different preachers over the years, because when we think about it, uh, there are things that we do in this life that will not be. <laughs> there is no evangelism in heaven. The opportunity is gone. We will sing in heaven. We do that now. We'll sing in heaven, which is wonderful. And we might even say serve because we for, will be forever serving the King of Kings, and offering up praise to him. So we will do that in heaven. But when it comes to evangelism, it's over with. Um, some of you may have seen some of the Olympics these last couple of weeks, and, and I went in and out on different things that I wanted to see and maybe people that I was familiar with or not. And one thing about it is when that timer goes off, the opportunity to meddle is gone. I saw a very interesting match of karate, and um, uh, 
One was controversial. I won't get into that. And the other is this person was trying their best in these last seconds to see if they could get a medal is gone. And for us, uh, there is a timer and we're on a timer. And that reminds me to start mine. (laughs) No, literally. (laughs) There we go. I think I've been going for about five seconds now. (laughs) That's gracious. Uh, When your timer goes off, the opportunity to work for the Lord, this side of heaven is gone. Is it not? The opportunity to evangelize is gone. That opportunity you said, you know, one day I really am going to talk with him about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's gone. And it may not be your time. It may be theirs. There's no guarantee that that neighbor will be there. There's no guarantee that that loved one will be there. There's no guarantee that that coworker or that enemy will be there. Their timer may go off, and then the opportunity to witness to them is gone, although yours is still clicking. Important. Um, we have a different mindset, and that different mindset then should propel us to live a life that is different. So what do I want to do this morning in the time that we have? I want to give you five sketches of a Christian life and keep with that idea of a sketch these five sketches of a Christian life I would like to provide for you. And I went through just scripture, looking just the word mind and thinking, and I came across 114 verses, and then I synthesized them down to 40 verses, and then I reflected on those verses and what they tell us about the mind. Let me just give you a sampling. I won't go through all of them, of course. Just a sampling. Just listen to me as I go. Matthew 16, 33. Um, Christ says of Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block. He says, you are not setting your mind on God. He says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Um, As those disciples were walking with Christ along the road, they didn't understand what had happened in Jerusalem, and he opened their mind to understand. How about Acts 2.46? They were day by day continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, it says, and taking your meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. How about Acts seventeen eleven? It says, now they were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see what of these things were so. And who were those noble minded people? They were the Bereans. And we're all called to be a Berean. I was just talking to actually before um, the service started to one of the Bereans uh, in our in our midst and, and looking at her Bible. And that was the spirit of a Berean. As I touched God any longer, God gave him over to what sort of mind? A depraved mind. Uh, Romans 8, 5. And it says this, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh and those of the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So we see uh, a line of demarcation here. Either it is the flesh or it is the Spirit. How about Romans 12 and 2? And don't be conformed to this world, right? But be transformed by what? The renewing of the mind. Renew the mind. Don't allow the world to influence you. Don't be transformed into its image. Don't be Conformed to its likeness, we are called to be conformed to the likeness, to the image of Jesus Christ. Are we not? Romans 12 and 6. It says here, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. 
Become sober-minded as you are. Stop sinning. Sober-mindedness, this sense of uh, uh, life is serious. Let me be serious with life itself. Let me consider my purpose in life. Uh, To be the opposite of sober means that one is flippant. Uh, One is perhaps we might even say immature. But a sober person says, let me take this to heart. How about 2 Corinthians 3.14? But their minds were hardened until the, the very reading of the Old Testament. saying the Old Testament saints, their minds were hardened to the scriptures. And even when the Old Testament w- was read, which should have opened their minds and opened their hearts, it was hardened towards it. And all of us, before we came to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we surely, at least myself, and I, because I know many of you, you heard messages. Jesus Christ, the first time you heard a gospel presentation, the first time. Okay, great. Several of you did the first time you heard it. But maybe I saw four hands of all the people in here. The rest of us, we heard message and sometimes met another message and another message. And our heart was hardened to the word of God, but it was only because of the sovereign will of God that he decided to show us grace to open our eyes. Amen. That's the only way way that it happened. Consider, if you will, second Corinthians four, four in whose God, in whose case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving. And what happens when they turn to Christ, as we talked about even last week, that veil is removed. How about Ephesians 4, 17? The Gentiles, it says, you were once Gentiles, and they walked in the futility of their mind, to be futile, to be vain, to be pointless, so that we might be an example to others around us. And of course, Ephesians 4.23 tells us what? That you would be renewed in the spirit of your, of your mind. Philippians 3.19, who set their minds on earthly things, and we're the opposite. We don't set our minds on earthly things. We set our minds on what? Heavenly things. How about Colossians 3.2? Set your mind, which is what we essentially just said, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And James 1.8 says, don't be a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. I love this. Consider 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this here is my very purpose in life. My commander in chief is returning again. The one who has enlisted me as a soldier is coming back. Will I be found doing his business? That's why I have to prepare my mind for action, to do something. And that's why even in this part two is what does a Christian do? How does he think? Jude 19. It says, these are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. First Corinthians 13, 11, I don't think like a child or act like a child. I, I put away childish things. And then it's also First Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. He says, when I became a man, I did what? I did away with what sort of things? Childish things. The Christian life is that. It is, let me put away child sins. Let me put away habits. Let me put away distractions. Let me put away things that aren't really the priority of a Christian. 
Let me not spend my time and my efforts on things that don't matter for eternity. Those are childish things. Um, let me put away that, in, to be real practical with you for a moment, let me put away that remote so that I might pray and think about other things. Let me put away those habits that I have that by themselves, the habit itself, or maybe even the hobby itself, is not a bad habit or a bad hobby, but yet it seems to distract me from things that are eternal. Let me put that aside, because now I should be thinking maturely. So having said that, and of course there are a host of other scriptures that I did mention, if I give you a synthesis of the biblical definition of the mind blinded, it is futile, it is worldly. And then there is the immature mind. The immature mind is earthly, it's hypocritical, it's childish, it is deceived. So this leads us to the first sketch of a Christian life, and it is this. Sketch number one, Christians are spiritually minded. So the spiritual minded person is this. They are renewed. They have a renewed mind. They have a unified mind. They have a sober mind. They have a prepared mind. They have a humble mind because they realize that all that they have comes by the grace of God. They have a mature mind. They've put away childish things. They have a noble mind. They stand up for something that matters. They have a stable mind. Unlike the former life, there was instability. Now there's stability. And they surely have a heavenly mindset, always looking to things above. And as Ephesians tells us that we have all these spiritual blessings. And where are the spiritual blessings? They are... So they have a changed mindset that creates this new passion. Some would teach that striving for Christ reflects a deeper walk with the Lord or, or another level of Christian discipleship. That is, you know, to really be a person who strives for Christ, that's, um, that's something that's not really peculiar to Christianity. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Hold on a second. I mean, if I'm striving for Christ, that is Christianity. There is no, uh, let me back up for a moment. When I was in college just a couple years ago, um, <laughs> there was a controversy which was brewing at the time, the lordship controversy, lordship salvation. And um, maybe it was even post-college a little bit, I forget now, lordship salvation. It's whether or not if I come to a now I strive to be as he is, and I strive to be a better Christian to take on the image of Christ. And uh, there was a bit of bantering going back and forth. Um, and of course, John MacArthur be, being in the center of some of that. Uh, and they would say, well, lordship salvation is another level of Christianity. And I even remember when people witnessed to me on campus, they said, well, maybe you're a Christian, Carl, but you just haven't made him Lord of your life. And I thought, okay, that, I understand. You can be a Christian, and later on, you become really serious, and then you make him Lord of your life. So I initially, I bought into that. Then I began to look at the Scripture myself, and I said, it's an absolute contradiction to the Scripture. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you all say that with me? He is what? The Lord Jesus Christ. And if he is the Lord Jesus Christ, it means what? If I say you are my Christ, there is no higher level of decision. No, you either are going to be a person who is passionate about the Lord or not. This is not the case. Now, of course, there may be some who have a deeper walk with the Lord, 
But we're all called to this quest. Everyone who has trusted Christ must have a passion to know him more. This is Christianity. And granted, again, some will have a passion that shines brighter. Um, but we must all have this same desire and hunger and thirst. If you don't thirst for Christ and hunger for Christ and desire for Christ, maybe that first sketch of your life says maybe you don't know the Lord. You don't. And when I say shine brighter, we should surely understand this. Uh, there will be people who we notice their brightness, but it doesn't mean that they were necessarily. There are people that we read about and we read their stories, do we not? And those stories can be inspiring. Uh, but that doesn't mean that they represented even the best in their area or the best lovers of God or those that were the most committed. Let me illustrate it this way. When I taught my workshop on prayer and there are a number of quotes that I gave people from Luther and from Calvin, which I love, and from John Henry and Leonard Ravenhill was one quote that I gave. I skipped the one on Oswald Chambers. And you hear these men, and you know these men, and you would say, wow, they shine so bright. But you can be rest assured in this fact, there will be people who prayed more diligently and consistently than a Luther and than a Calvin. All they, they did, in fact, pray. But you may never hear about them. That's just true in the Christian life. There are people that you never hear about. Or you. Now, we would never say that, but just uh, uh, buy with me for a moment. That is, we get to heaven, and we realize that there are people there, and we realize that they have such an impact on kingdom purposes, and we never read their book. We never heard their podcast. We never read their blog. We never downloaded one MP3 of them. But yet, there were people who served the Lord with all of their heart, but we never saw their brightness. But the one who sees all things did, amen? And so for you, the question is, how bright will you shine? Because there's only one that you should be concerned about who is looking at you. You shine bright for him. Uh, We are compelled to grow. Indifference to growth in the Christian life is not the Christian life. I mean, illustration, this way, perhaps. Um, If I told you there was a couple on no effort in getting to know one another, you would say, what sort of marriage is that? Well, please say it. <laughs> what sort of marriage is that? It's not a marriage. It's a bad one. Now I'm looking over at these newlyweds over here. Look, look at that. They're still beaming, right? They're still beaming. That is surely not your arrangement. Is this not correct? It's not. Good. <laughs> that is not your arrangement. Because you say, here is this new relationship that I have. And I want to grow in the knowledge and grace with that person. And so we have this relationship with Jesus Christ. And there must be something in you says that I want to know him more. And that's why any preacher, let me say this, any preacher that's worth his weight in salt is going to say, I wish I knew more about Christ. Any preacher, I don't care. (laughs) It doesn't matter how many letters behind your name. How many followers you have in social media? How many downloads you have? If you don't still have a hunger for Jesus Christ, you're misguided. And as a Christian, 
ask yourself, here's a sketch of a Christian life. I'm to be spiritually minded. Do I have a passion, a hunger for Jesus Christ? This is a major issue in the church today. Perhaps I would even say, perhaps even a disparaging issue in the church today. Because most places will say that, well, we agree that salvation is an act of the sovereign and gracious act of God. However, when it comes to how we live, there seems to be a disconnect. Turn with me for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 2. There could be no disconnect because it's clear in Scripture how we should then live, as Schaefer told us and challenged us here. Beloved, I urge you as soldiers or sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they, because of your good works, as they observe them, will do what glorify God in the day of visitation. So our behavior matters. Our, here, the behavior mattered towards those that were persecuting. Let them be put ashamed. But perhaps by your behavior, you will influence them, and they will have reason now to give glory to God in the day of visitation. You will have impact on them. But notice how he refers to them. Notice what he says in verse 11. I urge you as sojourners and exiles are as aliens and strangers. But we do know this as well. In the Christian life, uh, at times, uh, we will fail. We'll fail. The scripture is clear that, that at some point in time, all of us at some points in our journey will fall. But we get back up again, and we never remain there. If that weren't the case, what would be the point of 1 John 1.9? We conf- that we're to confess our sins and he will cleanse us. It's there. But here's the point. If you have tasted Christ, you want more of Christ, do you not? You do. Now, sometimes it may seem that Christ is elusive. And by that, I mean that you can experience Christ and have good communion with Christ and fellowship with Christ And it seems like it may slip away. Are you allowed it to slip away? And the key word is allow. Jesus Christ is never the Jesus Christ is never the elusive one. Never. It is we who say that we're Christians. He is always available. Always. See, indifference to Wanting more of Christ is an indifference to forgiveness and grace and comfort. It's an indifference to knowledge and presence and support. It's an indifference to Christianity itself. Let's keep moving ahead. There can be no prolonged indifference to these things and you really be in the faith. So what is a Christian? They have a spiritual mind. Number two is this. Sketch number two, Christians have a new passion. They have a new passion A Christian is someone who is indifferent to the world and passionate about Christ. And after too long, then there's a question whether or not you ever had the true priorities of a believer. What is my focus in life? What is my purpose in life? And why do they have this new passion? Go with me over to to 2 Peter. Why do they have this new passion? 2 Peter chapter 1. Verses 2 through 9. Let me tell you why they have this new passion. 
They have it because of what? Look at verses 3 and 4. They have it because they are fully supplied through this true knowledge and divine nature. Verses 3 and 4. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. You are a new creature. And as a new creature, now you're fully supplied with this true knowledge of God. And now you have a divine nature inside of you. And that divine nature is obviously oriented towards what? Heaven. This connects us to the divine. But notice as well, verses 5 to 8, we are expected to respond. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, apply more excellence in your more excellence, knowledge in your knowledge, self-control, and your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness, he says, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. He says, now, if these things are yours and are increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in one sense striving for virtues that are before us and those virtues of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are not a person who is striving, it is questionable whether or not you're in the race. One thing that's interesting, you think about the Olympic athlete, they train for years for that moment that comes and it's gone like that. Gone. And, um, you know, Allison Felix and uh, Paul is actually the, the pastor of my former church. Um, and I've known him for years and their family. And I saw, you know, uh, Allison, Allison growing up. And I remember being at a meet with Paul years ago when she was thinking just like our first year in high school. And he was there recording her with the old fashioned, you know, big, large camcorder there. And I just thought she was behind in a race by how far it was. And she came back and won. I thought, wow, she's something special. Unbelievable. Seven gold. Now I think it's eight gold. Um, Unbelievable. That she could achieve that. And one race that I think will maybe perhaps, and I'll even ask Paul, uh, is that bronze medal in the 400, her sweetest. 35. A mother. Nike drops her because they think she can't focus because now she's taking on motherhood. And I would say something right there, but I'll pass. Because uh, you're probably thinking some of the same things. Um, and there she was, and I saw her coming around that curve, and you're looking at the screen, you're cheering, you're realizing it's already taken place, and you're cheering for her, and at that one point in time, she was in fifth place, and I saw her come off that curve, and I saw her come up to fourth, and then she's battling for the bronze, and I saw her in those final maybe seven meters or so, maybe five meters, pull out severing, I won't quit, I will strive. In the Christian life, some of us are coming around our bend. Now, some of you are just starting. You're just out of the blocks. Some of us, I don't know, we're maybe at the 400, we're at the 300 mark. I'm not sure. (laughs) Some of you, you're coming to the final steps of your life. And the question will be, how will you finish? Will you finish with a passion? That's for you to 
to answer. You must have a new passion. And that passion has to drive you to say, I'm going to finish well. Because there is a, there is a, as Paul would say, there is an imperishable wreath that I'll receive. There's a crown of life that awaits me. See, there is a one for in whom these things are not present. For in whom, listen to that, very important. For in whom these things are not present. That one is what? What does it say? Blind. Being nearsighted. Having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Nearsighted. Yeah. Think about it. Are you nearsighted? Are you looking towards heaven? There is an internal conflict. We know it. We battle with it all the time. It is a reality. The scripture tells us this. Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 talks about the old man and the new man. Galatians 5, there is a flesh versus the spirit. Um, 1 Peter 2, it talks about, as we said, these sins which wage war against our soul. In 1 John, I Here's a third thing we need to understand about the Christian. Sketch number three. Christians live as overcomers. That's good news, isn't it? Christians live as overcomers. Christians are overcomers because they, God will complete this work of grace in their life. God is the one who began it. He will complete it. Amen? Um, Philippians 1. What does it tell us? Just turn there briefly. Familiar text. But let's look to Philippians chapter 1 really quick. Philippians 1, and it tells us what? In 1.6, it says in 1.6, says, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will do what? Perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete the work. Recognize it started with the sovereign act of God, but I will complete it with the human act of, of my will. It won't happen. Philippians 1.6. Romans, remember also Romans 8.29 and 30. That unbroken chain of salvation. Yes, I am an overcomer. Why? I have a new nature. I'm an overcomer. Why? God will complete the work. I'm an overcomer. Why? There's an unbroken chain of salvation. Then also we should remember as well what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12.1 and 2. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And because he is, this work will be completed. So we rest in that reality. Um, there's something else we should remember. 1 Corinthians 50 to 58. And it tells us this, the overview is this. We, are, we look to the victory of death because it's sealed. Why is it sealed? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we said, we go from God's foreknowledge being placed upon us now to glorification. And because of our nature, Christians look to the victory of death. This makes us stand out. Now, granted, there are other faiths who look to death as well, but our hope is unlike theirs. We can look with an absolute certainty that our faith will be realized, our salvation will be realized. There are other people that say, yes, I look to death because then I'll be in a perfect karma. 
I look to death because then Allah will reward me for all the things that I have done. I look to death because. But the majority of the world does not look to death. We see around us every day and we perhaps in the last, it seems, year and a half or so, how the sense of death and being reminded. You ever think about death? I mean, your own death. If you think about how you're going to end life, I'll share something with you. At times, I was just yesterday, I was in my closet doing some things. I had some scriptures on, um, and it was in the book of Revelation. I was Revelation. I'm listening to the end of the book of Revelation and this great picture that's going to happen. uh, This new Jerusalem, and it's talking about the streets of gold, which I've heard so many times. But yet I'm saying to myself, and then there is no need for any light because the lamb is the one who gives light. And I'm thinking about this great picture. And you have one of those and can it be moments. And an and can it be moment is, can this, is this really real? Because it really just seems too good to be true. I mean, I mean think with me for a moment. The very God of the universe says, I have loved you throughout eternity. I will, in fact, although you're rebellious, I will send my only begotten son to come and he will walk amongst you and he will be rejected of men. And he will heal and he will teach and he will feed. Then there'll come a point when he will be rejected by the religious leaders and he will be taken outside of the out of of Jerusalem and he will be crucified. And before this, he is beaten and he is cursed and he is mocked. And he is placed in a tomb. And by his own power, he raises himself again from the dead, securing your justification. So this, this is too good to be true. And we say that sort of at times in the business world, or or if you're looking for a deal, you go online for something, you say, well, that price just seems too good to be what? And if it's too good to be true, generally it's what? Not true. (laughs) But this is the complete opposite. Why? Because the lamb slain before the foundation of the world gave his life as a ransom for many. It would be too good to be true if it was based on me. If it was based on me, I'd have no hope. But if I understand a right view of Christ and who he is, and his sufficient work on the cross, then I could say, but of course, ashamed of it. You don't have to shrink from it. This is why in the book of Hebrews, it tells us, in Hebrews 4, that you could come boldly to the throne of grace. Why can I come boldly? Because I don't come with an offering. I don't come with a sacrifice. The sacrifice is at the right hand of God. He is there already. He has sat down at the right hand of majesty is what Hebrews tells us. So I can in fact come boldly because it's not based on anything that I've done. It's based on everything that Jesus Christ has done. And if I understand Jesus Christ properly, I can say, yes, I believe that one day I will be on streets of gold. Yes, I am in fact an overcomer. 
Let me live accordingly. Let me avail myself of the grace that God has provided for me to live this Christian life. We are overcomers, amen, of the Christian life. Christians long to offer God genuine worship. They long to offer God genuine worship. I mean, a Christian is someone who has this passion and desire to offer him what he could not or she could not offer before. This is why Jesus Christ said to Nicodemus, this truth about he is looking for worshipers and those worshipers shall do it in what way? Spirit and truth. This is Christianity. This is not an addendum. This is not something we just affix to it at some point in time. Later in life, when we become more spiritual or more mature or more dynamic in our Christian life. It's who we are. The psalmist we see throughout wanting to offer genuine worship. The prophets wanting the people of God to offer genuine worship. The faithful through history wanting to offer God genuine worship. And so when we think about this next life, Marianne Williamson, author and lecturer on spirituality, some of you may have heard of her. Listen, I agree with what Father Manning said. That all of the love that we've longed for all of our lives, we find it. We're there. I think that only love is real. And we can see it once we've died. I think that this earth is like a veil of illusion. The mortal mind obfuscates the spiritual truth, which is the love of God. And I think that when we die, the veil falls down. The filter is gone. And we're in that state of pure love, which is God. Is there a problem with her statement? Back from it, you're, you're exactly right. The veil was removed when we came to Christ. And another veil will be removed when we get to heaven because we lose what? Oh, this. Do we not? We lose it. It's gone. The mortal mind does not allow us to see spiritual truth. That is true. But where she has gone damningly wrong is the sense that we will be in this state of love, which is God. So now God is defined by being in a blissful love. Not true. We will be forever before the Lamb of God, offer him genuine worship Forever and ever. I had a com- I was thinking in my mind, I was out for my run this morning, which I do when I'm going to teach, and I was thinking about um, some, um, you know, about heaven. And that saddened me. Um, and I'm sure we'll have more. And... And, you know, I'm thinking, wow, the first time they have a ball game or recital, they won't be able to be there. But they're on the other side of eternity um, with Christ. And people have told me in the past, well, you know, but I'm sure they're looking down from heaven. And people told me, like, well, you know, your dad's gone, your mom's gone now. Well, I'm sure he would be so proud of them. I'm sure they're looking down from heaven. Uh, No. No. Uh, love them though I do, love me though they do, they are not concerned about Carl Hargrove look at all. Do you agree with that? So get that fixed in your mind. 
Don't ever think somebody that's gone to heaven is, oh, look at my little one. <laughs> when you have the Lamb of God here, Lamb of God, let's thank you. No, they're not. It's a, it's a warm-hearted thought, but not a reality. And when I pass uh, into the other side of eternity, and I leave behind maybe some great-grandkids, I, that's great, the Lamb of God. That's our reality. That's who we are. Genuine worship. The fifth sketch is this, and I hurry through it. This final sketch and what it means to be a Christian. Sketch number five, Christians make life-impacting choices. So I have this new passion. I want to offer genuine worship. Um, I have a new mind. What should I do? And let me give them to you briefly. They make social choices that complement their new life. You cannot live the same social life. Some of you can because you change for you socially. Some of us had to make serious social choices, cut off friends, relationships, people, habits, places, things. Number two, they do this. They make financial choices that support the work of God. If you believe it is an eternal work with eternal impact, you invest in it. That's why Jesus Christ said, don't invest here, invest where? In heaven. Moth and rust will destroy all of this. Um, Investments go up and down, and I've seen that happen even in the last probably nine months. Oh, wow. Right. I mean, I just lost some money just like that. I woke up one morning, and it was gone. They make moral choices that reflect their new Lord. The sketch of a Christian life is these things. But here's a final thought for you. Will you live with purpose? This commitment to live with purpose. Listen to this. Ellen Johnson, she's a former president of the American Atheist. She served actually from 1995 to 2008. She said this. The atheist accepts the reality that when you die... That is the end. That is it. Therefore, when you're living, life is all we can ever know. We can't know death. Death is a nonsense word. So we have to do our part now to make this a better life for ourselves and for the rest of humanity and all of the life on this planet. The only fulfillment, the only joy, the only happiness you will ever know is right now. Now is the time to do your part and to enjoy life. We don't take any moment for granted for that very reason. Oh, that's focus, isn't it? But damning. Your best life now, here it is. And that's what Paul said as well. He said, well, if there's no resurrection, then what should we do? Eat, drink, for tomorrow we what? We die. But it's not true. We just don't eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We live and we worship and we live with passion. And we witness to others around us. That's what we do. We, we renew our mind. That's what we do. We taste of Christ and we want more of Christ. That's what we do. Because we realize that when we die, life begins. But for the fool-hearted atheist, of course, it only makes sense to live all that you can for this life. To them, death is a nonsense word. But for us, with God.
So if you were to sketch your life, what would we see? Would it be, I don't really, I don't, I don't really know what you're trying to draw there. It's not, I, oh, a Christian, oh, okay, I get it. All right. Now that you told me, I see it, but I wouldn't have seen it before from you. Father, help us to live for eternity. Give us grace. Show us mercy. In Christ's name, amen.